Everyone say hello to Paul. All right. I think DJ loves you the most, apparently. Um, I mean, of course, Patty does. I just didn't hear her shout out Paul's name. Um, uh, I wanted to give really Paul an opportunity just to kind of share what God has been uh, laying and impressing upon uh, his heart. Uh, if you don't know Paul Fleming that well, uh, quick background is uh, Genesis just planted as a brand new church nine months ago, and uh, our church that uh, has been supporting us and uh, sent us is a church in Winchester called Hope Christian Church. And at Hope Christian Church, uh, Paul Fleming uh, has served as an elder there for roughly about five years. Uh, and so when Paul decided to come uh, and support and be part of the Genesis community, uh, one of the things that was still in question was, what does this mean in terms of being an elder at Hope and how does that all work? So God's been talking to him about that. And I just wanted to give Paul an opportunity to, to share just what God's been speaking to you about. So over the last couple of weeks, about two weeks ago, I was just uh, really having a good time of prayer, and the Lord, uh, the Lord just made it very clear. He said, uh, look, um, I called you to go to Genesis, and um, that's where I want you to be. That's where I want your family to be, and uh, stop messing around, <laughs> and uh, just, uh, you know, cut the ties with hope, and uh, do what I told you to do originally, and just... Just uh, make it clean and do it right. And uh, so I said, sure, I can do that. <laughs> so uh, just uh, actually it was, it was great because uh, so I just was obedient to that. And uh, I let the folks at Hope know that I would be resigning as an elder at Hope and fully committing to, uh, to Genesis and that we wouldn't wait the year and we were just going to go ahead and do that. So um, I just say that to you guys this morning with rejoicing, um, you know, God has just fully confirmed to us uh, what we already knew last August, that this is where we were to be. And uh, because of um, just our uh, relationship with all of you guys has been so awesome, and uh, uh, just our ministry here has been, uh, has been strong and fruitful, uh, it was just very clear that what God told us to do nine months ago, he's really confirmed for us. So, uh, um, you know, just, uh, you know, you guys need to know... Um, you know, when I when I look at you guys, uh, just the Lord has just filled uh, Patty and I with a love that's just incredible for each and every one of you. So, uh, you know, that only comes from God, and uh, I just praise Him for it. So, that's the news. Thanks, Paul. If um, uh, you don't know Paul and Patty yet, uh, there's much to know about Paul and Patty, just in terms of two phenomenal people who really love God, have a heart for God, and have a heart for uh, his church and just have a heart, a genuine heart uh, for people. Uh, so position yourself around them uh, to be challenged, to be loved, to be encouraged, and just to get to know them. Uh, but I've shared, uh, said this uh, privately to Paul, but I want to share publicly about Paul. Uh, and this is not, we're not worshiping Paul by any means. Uh, he's a phenomenal sinner just like all of us, but he knows Jesus and has been uh, uh, saved by his grace. Uh, but one of the things that uh, has, I've known Paul for about six years now, and Patty and uh, Peter and Nikki, uh, they're two children, uh, and Paul is, um, he's very obedient. Uh, he really sits and listens, positions himself in a place where he can hear from God, uh, and when God uh, clearly speaks to him, uh, he responds. And I can't say that about everyone. Uh, sometimes we hear things and we just disregard and be like, no, that's, that's nothing, that's clearly not God. Uh, but when Paul, uh, just in the years of walking with God, uh, has gotten to know and understand God's voice, and so when God speaks to Paul, 
uh, whether it's sometimes just through prayer and just sitting and being with God or sometimes just reading the scriptures uh, or even just being with another brother or friend, uh, he responds. And so this is uh, just another demonstration of Paul uh, being obedient to what God has uh, laid upon his heart and Patty's heart and uh, be challenged by that, be encouraged by that, uh, to be obedient because uh, there is so much blessing uh, in being obedient. I'm not talking like prosperity, health, and wealth. I'm just talking about the blessing of hearing God's voice uh, and knowing that God's speaking to you, guiding, directing, and leading you. Well, as I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, we've got um, uh, two more texts uh, that we're going to walk through uh, in a series that we called uh, I Want to Live. Uh, and the whole heart behind I Want to Live was the difference of people who are just trying to survive life and people who are pressing on into living the life that God has called us, invited us, ultimately commanded us uh, to live. And so for uh, we started in the fall, and uh, we took a break over Christmas, took a break over Easter, uh, but we're back with uh, two more messages. And very interesting, the text that we're looking at today, um, Jesus is still teaching, he has things to say, but he's wrapping up his message. Uh, most people uh, would agree that this message, if you just were to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it would probably take you, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes at best uh, to read. So this was not a message that Jesus preached and in 10 minutes and then just said, peace out, God bless, I hope it all goes well. This was probably a teaching over the span of about a week or at least a weekend where Jesus was sitting with thousands upon thousands of people and they were listening to what Jesus had to say. How many people saw the movie uh, The Matrix? There's this important scene where Morpheus uh, meets Neo, right? And uh, this is the red pill and the blue pill scene, okay? And he's looking at Morpheus with his hands, and he's got a red pill and a blue pill, and he says, Neo, if you take the blue pill, you can just go home, you'll wake up tomorrow, and you'll forget about everything that you've already seen and encountered. You'll go away, and you'll be no different. There will be no change in your life. But he said, Neo, if you take the red pill, you're going to see how far this rabbit trail, so to speak, goes. And so Neo grabs the red pill pretty quickly, uh, and Morpheus says, I don't promise you anything except just to show you the truth. I don't promise an outcome for you. I will just show you the truth. So what Jesus is doing, okay, Jesus is not Morpheus, uh, but Jesus in this few verses is leading people, it's time to make a decision. One of the things that I love about Jesus is there's no room for being neutral, there's no room for being like, well, that was a great message. I'm just going to go. It's time now in the text that we're looking at is to make a decision. And I don't think Jesus preached this phenomenal message just to challenge people or encourage people or tickle people's ears, so to speak, where they would walk away and be like, wow, he's a phenomenal preacher, but they go away unchanged, not any different. And so the two verses that we're going to look at... Um, Jesus says, it's time to decide. Are you in or are you out? Which way are you going? Which road will you choose? There's only two options. There's not a myriad of options. There's just two. You can be going this way or you can be going this way. One way leads away from God. One way is walking with God. If uh, you're familiar with um, Robert Frost, he wrote a great uh, poem about 100 years ago, I think, called Two Roads. And uh, I tried to find some history on uh, what actually inspired Robert Frost because I thought it had much to do with 
Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 7, uh, and to my dismay, it actually had to do with a friend of his going off to war, from what I could understand. It says, two roads diverged in yellow wood, and sorry, I could not travel both. And be one traveler long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could. To where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other as just as fair. And having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for the passing there, had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. And then this is the part of the poem that everyone knows. Everyone's like, oh, I didn't know that was part of the poem. This is the part that gets the most press. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roges diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Two roads diverged in wood, and I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all of the difference. Jesus, 2,000 years prior to that, this is what Jesus said. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Two very short verses, but very powerful verses. Listen to them again. Enter through the narrow gate. He's calling for decision. You can't stand at the door and look at it. He's saying, enter in the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. He says four things about the wide road that we'll cover in a second. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Just ask the question up front. Do you know which direction you're walking? As you examine your life right now, which road are you on? Which direction are you actually headed? You cannot be neutral. You can't say, I'm just standing still. There's no room for neutrality. We are always moving. It's just a question of which direction we're moving. Jesus says there is a wide gate, a broad road, leads to destruction, and there are a lot of people. That road is populated with a lot of people. But then there's another road. It's a very small gate. The road itself is very narrow. Its road actually leads to life, to heaven, and there are only a few people who actually find the narrow road. Four attributes about the wide road and then some about the narrow road. It has a very wide gate, meaning anyone and everyone is welcome. This is the heart of universalism. It doesn't really matter what you believe because at the end of the day, all roads, all doors, all gates, they ultimately lead to the same place. So if you believe this, that's fine. It doesn't matter. That will get you where you want to go. And if you believe this, that's okay. That will get you where you want to go. All roads ultimately lead to the same place. What's true about universalism is all roads do lead to the exact same place if it's not the road of walking with Jesus. And it's the road of destruction. So it says it has a very wide gate. 
the picture that I have of a very wide gate. Have you ever flown on an airplane? You can only take a few bags with you on the plane, and they have to be really, really small. You can't come on a plane with all of your luggage in tow because there's just no room for it. On the wide gate with the wide road, so to speak, you can come in with whatever you want. You don't have to check any baggage. And what I mean by that is you don't have to change. You don't have to repent of any sin. You can just continue living life as you want to live life. There is no baggage handler at the door saying, no, you can't bring that with you. No, it's saying, no, come, bring whatever you want. You don't have to change that habit. You don't have to change that sinful way. Just come, bring yourself. doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you have. Second, it says the road itself, it's very broad and it's very spacious, meaning it's very comfortable on this road. It's very cozy. You don't have anyone on this road challenging you. You don't have anyone on this road asking you questions or calling you out saying, why are you living like that? Or what are you doing with that? Or why are you mingling with those things over there? You don't have anyone asking you any hard questions because everyone who lives on this road, they don't care about what anyone else is doing. They only care about what they're doing. But the second what you do impacts someone else, well, then it gets messy. You can do whatever you want, but as long as it doesn't infringe upon me. So it's got a very wide gate. It's got the road itself is very broad and very spacious. And this is when I think the most, just it stops me in my tracks. This road leads to destruction. That means hell. This road, if you walk this way, the wide gate, the broad, spacious road, it it leads you, not to God, but away from God, to absolute, total destruction, meaning hell. I don't know if anyone was a fan of um, a band called ACDC. If you were, come talk to me afterwards. But um, they wrote a song called Highway to Hell that was largely, I think, inspired by this text. This is, just listen to the lyrics. If you're familiar with the song, you think, oh, that's a, you know, I'm on the highway to hell. And we're like, we're singing this. We, we karaoke this. And we're like, yes, this is, this is a great song. This is the song, Highway to Hell, by a band called ACDC. Living easy, living free. A season ticket on a one-way ride. Asking nothing, leave me be taking everything in stride. I don't need reason and I don't need rhyme. Ain't nothing I would rather do going down its party time. My friends are going to be there too. I'm on the highway to hell. There's no stop signs. There's no speed limit. No one's going to slow me down. I'm like a wheel. I'm going to spin it and no one's going to mess me around. Hey, Satan, paid my dues that's, he's saying, hey, Satan, I paid my dues. I'm playing in a rock band. And he says, hey, mama, look at me. As if mom would be like, ah, yes, that's my son. I'm so proud. <laughs> I'm on my way to the promised land. I'm on the highway to hell. I'm going down, all the way down. I'm on the highway to hell. That's so sad. It's just so sad. It's a wide gate. It's a very broad, spacious road. 
and the destination is hell. With the mentality, the attitude of it is going to be a party not only on the way there, but somehow, some way, hell, the party is going to continue. That Satan is going to be my partying buddy, my drinking buddy. Jesus says, this road itself, wide gate, very broad, but its destination is hell. He goes on and says, the road, it's packed. It's a very popular way to walk. It's a very popular way, a road to choose. And he says, there are many people on it. Now, at first, the wide gate, broad road seems it's so much better, superficially. No one's messing with me. No one's telling me what I have to do or what I have to believe, or I don't have to make any changes about myself. I don't have to give anything up. I don't, I don't have to do anything. I can just do whatever the heck I want to do. So why not walk it? Everyone else seems to be going that direction. So what's the big deal if I head that direction as well? Well, the big deal is that direction leads one way. And to quote ACDC, it is a highway to hell. So why on earth, if you knew that this way that you were walking, ultimately end game was utter destruction of you, your life, ultimately separation from God, why on earth would anyone in the right mind choose willingly to walk this road, this highway to hell? Why would anyone do this? And my simple answer was, people don't really care about the destination. They don't really care about ultimately where it goes. They just care about the ride that they're on. They're, they just care about how it feels now. They just care about the momentary pleasures. They don't care about the end game because they're not looking towards the end game. They can only see what's in front of them, and they're just concerned with immediate, instantaneous gratification. It just feels right now. It feels good right now. I know this doesn't end well, but who cares? I'm just enjoying myself right now. The Apostle Paul um, wrote these words with tears in his eyes. He said this, Philippians chapter 3, join with others in following my example. So he's saying, please, the example I've set for you, walk this way. And take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. He goes on, For as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears. I just picture Paul is crying as he's penning these words. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. That means just hedonism. They can't think of anything else besides what to fill themselves with, the momentary pleasures. Their destiny is their destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. And this is why I think why so many people walk this road without a care of where this road actually will take them, is their mind is on earthly things. They just can't see anything beyond what's in front of them. And what's in front of them is, I just want to enjoy anything and everything. Whatever makes me feel good, what even numbs my pain. I don't care where this goes. I just care that I'm taken care of now. That's one road. 
What's scary is Jesus says there's a lot of people on this road. As I was reading Philippians earlier, I was really convicted by his tears. That am I crying for people who are on that road? When I look at people and they're walking in that direction, absolutely so far hell-bent on getting away from God. Is my attitude one of, forget them, they deserve it, I know that person. Or is my attitude one of, I'm emotionally brought to the brink of tears because my heart breaks for the road that they're walking because I know where that road leads. I wonder if non-Christians, people who are walking this road, saw Christians with more tears in their eyes, if that might make a difference and an impact on their life. Not tears of pity, but tears of compassion. Tears of, I love you enough. I care about you, not only where you are now, but I care about the road you're walking because I know where it goes. That's one way. There's four things not to be missed about the narrow road. Go back and it says, but small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and there are only a few that find it. It has a very small gate. There's only one way in. And actually, if you read a couple verses of what Jesus said in the Gospel of John, this is chapter, uh, chapter, chapter 10, verse 9. It says, I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. I am the gate. That's what Jesus says. There's only one way. He goes on in John 14, verse 5 and 6. He's talking to Thomas, and Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus looks at Thomas and says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas is confused of how can we know where you're going? To how would we know how to get there? And Jesus says, I am the way. The only way, not well, like one of many options. I am the gate and I am the way. I want to be clear, Jesus was not a universalist. He was not of the mindset that any way you choose to get to God, whether you work your way to God, philosophize your way to God, whether you choose some different faith background system, Jesus made very clear, I am the gate. Anyone who comes to me will be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus was not a universalist. He not only came and showed the way and paved the way for us, he showed us how to actually live life on the way, on that road. Notice the gate is very narrow. Jesus, there's only one way in, and you can't bring your stuff with you. There are no bags allowed, just you. Meaning in any past hang-ups and any sins, any whatever, it's just you. That's it. No bags allowed, just you. Mark chapter 8 says it most eloquently. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel, we'll save it. And then I think this is one of Jesus' most profound questions. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, but yet forfeit his soul? What good is it to walk that wide gate, broad road, leads to destruction, there where everyone else is at? What good is it to walk that road if it ultimately leads 
You've lost your soul. Even if you could gain the whole world, but you can't, but even if you could, is it really worth your soul? It has a very small gate, and you can't bring anything with you. Just you. And it says the road is very, very narrow. I picture on the broad road that there's like exit ramps all over the place. You ever been driving on a long stretch of highway and there's these billboards enticing you, get off at this exit and then get off at this exit. We've got this over here and we've got this over here. That's what the broad road looks like in my mind. It's a road filled with lots of exit ramps and on-ramps, people coming in and going off and I'm going to go over here for a little bit. I'm going to go over here for a little bit. On the narrow road, there's no exit ramps. You know why there's no exit ramps? Because the narrow road's not about you. It's, it's about Jesus. Small gate, very narrow road. And number three is the destination is heaven. The destination is life. I remember a seminary professor once challenged me and said, Michael, if you aren't thinking about heaven at least once a day, you're not thinking about much. And I was like, oh. Because <laughs> I couldn't remember the last time I had a conscious, aware thought of, of thinking about what heaven was going to be like dwelling with God in heaven. Why? Because I'm so stuck here. But yet God is preparing this amazing place for us, for you, for I in heaven. When's the last time you thought about heaven? Like just got stuck in that moment, daydreaming, thinking about, my goodness, what is it going to be like to be in heaven? What is it going to be like to be with God? Interesting enough, Jesus doesn't really talk much about heaven in terms of details. He doesn't talk much about what it's going to be like. He talks about what hell's going to be like. Gives horrific descriptions, actually, of what hell are going to be like. The best description of what heaven is going to be like is found in the second to last chapter in the Bible, in the book of Revelation. Revelation 21, verse 3 and 4 says this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That is the best description of what heaven is going to be like. We're going to be with God, and it's going to be nothing like it is now. No pain, no tears, no death, no sin. Michael, how often do you think about heaven? Not much, professor. Well, then what are you thinking about? The destination of this narrow gate, narrow road, leads to heaven, leads to life. And Jesus goes on and says, there's not many people there. The population on this road is very sparse. Only a few people actually are walking this road. Does it surprise you that there's not many people on this road? I mean, if this road, one road leads to heaven, one one road leads to hell, you would think the road leading towards God, with God, being with God forever, that would be jam-packed with people. Jesus says it's not. Does that surprise you? I personally, it doesn't surprise me because I think it takes a very courageous, focused person to live and walk on the narrow road. 
The best example I could think of was a guy named Moses. In the book of Hebrews, Moses is an Old Testament character, uh, but in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, it talks about these people in the Old Testament who had such great faith, and for us to be encouraged, challenged, blessed, inspired by their example. And then it comes to Moses. And if you don't know Moses, Moses grew up as a prince, meaning he had every right, everything that the world could offer a prince was at his fingertips. He could have had it all in terms of what the world had to offer, but this is what it says of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he considered, um, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. There was a refusal there. Refused to be known by the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a short time. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking ahead to his reward. I love this picture. Moses said, yeah, I could be a prince. I could have all the pleasures of this world and that sin would bring. Albeit so fleeting, I could have those things. But Moses said, I, as I look forward, God, walk with God, relationship with God, eternity with God, that is of greater value to me than anything else. He was looking forward. Why do so many Christians, and what I'm defining as a Christian is someone who's confessed Jesus as God, repented of their sin, and committed to Jesus as Lord of their life. It's my very quick definition of what it means to be a Christian. Why do so many Christians have a very hard time walking and living on the narrow road? I'll give you an example of why. This will be my Oscar award-winning performance for acting skills. Okay? My question is, why do so many Christians have such a hard time walking the narrow road? Okay, so if my narrow road is the cross, that's where I'm going, that's where I'm headed, taking a few steps and take a few more steps forward and I'm just looking everywhere but forward. I'm looking everywhere but walking forward. I'm not looking at where God's called me to go. I keep looking over here and be like, man, what, a, what about that over there? Or gosh, look behind me. Look, look at all that stuff I'm giving up. Or man, look at them over here. There's a great psalm. Psalm, uh, psalm 73. Just want to read you. This is my answer to why so many Christians have a hard time living life on the narrow road. Surely God is good to Israel. This is a psalm of Asaph, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. I was walking this way, but I almost slipped. I almost fell. Why? For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
I was walking this way. I'm trying to be a godly man, but I look over there and people who hate God, don't like God, don't live for God, they seem to have everything. He goes on and says they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. So he, Asaph is walking this way and he pauses, he considers, but look at all these people who don't even like God and they seem to have everything. It's so easy for them. Has that ever happened to you? Where you're like, man, I'm trying, to hard, trying hard to live for God, to be obedient, to make much of God, to, to repent of all my sin, but it just seems to get harder and harder and harder. And then I just put my eyes over here and I see my buddy. He's got the nicest stuff, the greatest toys, no issues, no problems that at least I can see in his life. He seems to have everything. I'm like beating my body, repenting of all these things, and I got, I got nothing. I just, I'm struggling. That's my life. This was Asaph's conclusion. When I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me until something happened. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. There is one road that leads to destruction, and there are many people who are on it. There is one road, it's very small, very narrow, but that road leads to eternal life, leads to heaven. So Asaph's conclusion is, if I would just look at them and know where they are absolutely headed, I don't want to go to their final destination, which is destruction. And so he says this in conclusion of his psalm, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will take me into glory. It's a great question. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Too many Christians who are trying to walk the narrow road going this way keep looking over here. And they keep like looking over here. What about them? They have everything. They have so much. It matters where the destination in that road takes you. That was Asaph's conclusion. My good friend Mike Shaw has been helping me get back into working out. Uh, if you didn't know, I used to be a swimmer, and I haven't swum in like 10 years. Um, and uh, Mike is not a swimmer. He was like a track rock star. But he's swimming to, uh, he's got other issues. You can talk to him about it later. Um, but he's swimming. And uh, so working out with Mike in the pool, uh, I noticed one of the things that Mike was doing uh, was he was dropping his head when he was swimming. And so I said, Mike, just to help you out a little bit, uh, when you're swimming, look at the, at the wall of a pool. It's got a cross. At the end of every wall is always a black stripe with a, a cross uh, uh, there. And I said, I was taught early on when I was like six, seven years old, keep your head up looking towards the cross. This is not like some spiritual thing. This was keep your eyes focused, fixed, looking at the cross. Where your head goes, so your body goes. As soon as you drop your head, what happens in swimming is your muscles in your neck get so tired, lactic acid flowing, that you start dropping your head. You drop your head, your body follows. It's very difficult to swim underwater. Have you ever seen a guy like Michael Phelps 
His eyes, his head is so on top of the water and his body just skims on top. Do you know why? Because his eyes are looking forward towards that little cross. Point being, where are your eyes looking? If they're looking over there and over there, what about them? What about them? They have it all. They have this. They have that. I got nothing. Where are your eyes looking? If you're going to live life on the narrow road, keep looking towards heaven. Keep looking towards the eternal things that God has for us. Here's a prop for you. I'm going to pass this around. Uh, I want everyone to at least grab it once. This is your narrow road. This is the best illustration I could give you of Matthew 7, 13, and 14. This is actually a perfect example of what the narrow road and the broad road looks like. If you enter here, it's amazing. It's big. It's spacious. It's comfortable. So many people are going in this direction. But what they don't know is they continue to travel down this road. It gets smaller and tighter and tighter, ultimately to the point where it just stops. There is no life there. It ends, it suffocates you, it chokes you out. There's nowhere to go. But what's amazing is if you enter through here, a very small gate, a very narrow entryway, where it can only take you, that's it. As you walk this road, this life with God, it gets so much more spacious. As you continue on and on down this road, If I live here, yes, in the moment, it looks great. There's a party going on in here. But as you walk down further, it chokes the very living life out of you. Not so when I enter here. I continue walking towards the spacious life that God has for me. I literally just want you to pass it around. And as you put it in your hands, look at both sides. What? Where am I walking? Where am I living? Which side of this little equation am I on? Am I on the narrow road that's leading towards life, or am I on the very open, wide, broad-gated, huge road? I can see a lot of people, but it's actually leading towards my destruction. Which road are you walking on? Jesus only gives two options. The two options are very simple. A narrow road and a broad road, narrow gate and a wide gate. One leads to destruction, one leads to life. One road, there's a lot of people, and one road, there's a few. Which one are you on? I'm going to go through Jesus' next section here in Scripture, uh, because to those who would walk on this very narrow road, he gives them a warning. And the warning is a pretty stern warning of, watch out. If you commit yourself to walk this road, there will be people who will want to take you down, tear you apart, and destroy you. This is what he says. Matthew 7, verse 15. Watch out for the false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. One of the hardest things for me that I've learned, observed, and seen in the church is that there are people in the church dressed like sheep, but they are bent on tearing people apart, taking people away from God. Here's a picture of a wolf. We see a picture uh, of a wolf like this, and it's like, wow, they're kind of cute. 
like a big dog. Kind of, you know, I'd like to have a few of those. And I don't know, they're good screensavers. Certainly they'd make good pets. They look good. But my next picture of a wolf, this is what a wolf really looks like. It's powerful imagery that Jesus gives. There are sheeps. Sheeps are pretty helpless. They need someone to care for them, someone to lead them, someone to guide them, someone to feed them. They need everything, someone to protect them. That's why they have a shepherd. But a wolf, of all of the imagery that Jesus could give, he gives the image of a wolf, someone who is bent on killing and destroying sheep. People who look like sheep, Jesus says, there will be people amongst you who will look like sheep, but they have one thing in mind, and that's just to destroy the sheep for their own gain. Practically speaking, who's a wolf? Who is ultimately a wolf? What does that really look like? What I have is leaders in the church who look really good on the outside, but beneath the surface, they are bent on using people for their own benefit. They use or manipulate or take advantage of people for their own purpose, for their own gain. They don't care about you. They care only about themselves. Leaders who only care about themselves. This is um, actually from the book of Jude. I want to give you a good picture of what wolves look like. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Did you get a good picture? This is what some leaders in the church look like. They're grumblers, fault finders. They boast about themselves. Look at me. Flatter others, but only in such a way that they would gain a better standing or reputation. Genesis is brand new. Okay? We are a brand new church uh, for the past nine months or so. This is something that our church needs to be on guard against like crazy. A lot of sheep, but one of the things we need to be on guard against of people who want to walk and live life on the narrow road is being on guard against people who would seek to take us off the narrow road, ultimately destroy us. Paul was talking earlier about um, uh, elders, and we've got a process right now set up for uh, men who are being called towards eldership, or at least examining their call. We've got the same thing in place for uh, men and women who are examining a call towards deaconship. Some people have asked, why is this process so long? It's about a year, and for some, it's going to be longer. Why is this process so long? Yeah, there's some training going on. Yeah, there's some equipping going on. Yeah, there's some studying going on. But you want to know what's going on? A lot of observation. I'm just watching. You can tell a lot about a person, give them enough time. At the heart of this elder deacon this year is a lot of observation. Go back to Jude 16. Men are grumblers, fault finders. They boast about themselves, flatter others for their own advantage. 
who will be leaders in this church. Won't be wolves. Why? Because there will be a time of observation, a time to see what their faith really looks like, and a time to see what their character really looks like. You can learn so much just by watching, by observing. So when someone comes and says, hey, I want to be a leader, I've got this in my background, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, and I say, well, hey, this is going to be the process. It's going to be about a year. No, but anyone who wants to rush into leadership, it's always a huge red flag. At least a year. Life group leaders, this might seem like a simple rule, but you can't lead a life group until you've been in a life group. Oh, but I'm a seminary trained guy. I, I've done this and I've led small groups at my old church and I've done this. No, get in a life group. Let the life group leader observe you. Let them watch you. Let them come alongside you. I don't need that. I've done this before. Then if you're, no, you're not leading anything. I think one of the greatest quality characteristics about any leader is just humility. Someone who's willing to submit themselves to process and be observed and be watched up close and also from a distance. How would you be able to recognize a wolf? This is what Jesus says, by their fruit. <laughs> Pretty simple. How will you be able to recognize wolves? By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Jesus says the same thing a few ways, a few different times, but he's saying the same thing again. Just look at someone's fruit from their life. Specifically, I'll give you two. They're teaching. Watch what they say. Is what they're saying, is it biblical? I met with a, a friend of mine who's a pastor. Some of you guys know him. His name is Derek. He's a pastor of a brand new church in Connecticut, about 1,000 people. I said, how's your teaching going? How are people receptive to your preaching? And what have you been preaching on? And he shared with me and said, the people are amazed. And I said, why? And he said, well, they keep coming up to me and saying, we haven't had the Bible in for so long. And Derek was like, well, this guy was here for 15 years before me. What was he giving you? Well, he would just tell lots of stories. He wouldn't preach the Bible. Do you know that's the norm in New England? Like, it's a rarity where you find churches, pastors who love Scripture, make a big deal about Scripture, and preach Scripture. There are people who would actually get up and just read ACDC and be like, that's a bad song. Don't listen to it. God bless, peace out, have a great week. Is their teaching, is it biblical? Is what they say, is it biblical? Is that leader with their words, leading, pushing, encouraging, challenging people towards the cross of Christ? Or are they just talking a lot about themselves? If you have a leader who talks more about themselves than they do about Jesus, that's a red flag. I'd pay attention to that. I'd call him out. Man, I hear you talk a lot about yourself, but what about Jesus? Do you know him? Is it biblical they're teaching? Is what they are saying with their words, is it pointing people to Jesus? Okay? 
People can fake you out with their words. They can share some Bible verses with you. They can say some things and be like, oh, they must know what they're talking about. So the second test, the fruit, watch how they live. Watch how they live. Examine, observe their life. It's a famous saying of, you know, practice what you preach. I think it's backwards. You should be preaching what you're practicing. Because it's very easy to preach something, but then I don't practice that. Is what is being preached from me, from any other leader in this church? Is it coming, flowing from what they practice in everyday life? That's why they're preaching it. Observe, watch, do they love Jesus? Are they cultivating a relationship with God? I'm amazed that not many people ask me how my relationship with God is. I think there's a lot of people who assume I walk with God. I think there's a lot of people who assume I'm spending time in Scripture, I'm spending time on my knees in prayer. There's a few. There's some who ask me, how's your relationship with God, Michael? You hear me talk about God. You hear me point you to Jesus. Don't ever assume that I'm walking with Jesus. I give you permission and freedom to ask me or any other leader in this church, ask, how is your relationship with Jesus? Tell me about it. Not as a quiz to trip them up, but because you care. Not, oh, can you cite this verse? And can, oh, you're, what kind of leader are you? How are you cultivating your relationship with Jesus? You have permission and freedom to ask me at any moment, at any time. The fear is, if you ask me, what am I going to do? I'm going to ask you the same question. Shocking. And what we don't want is you don't want someone else asking you how you are cultivating your relationship with God, so you don't ask. This is all under the banner of how do you know someone is a wolf? Examine, look at their fruit, pay attention to their teaching, and then pay attention to their life. Am I cultivating a relationship with Jesus? Ask me about my marriage. Am I really loving my wife? Am I really investing in her? When you hear me talk about Kyla, I don't think anyone could ever peg me in this, and I'm not trying to be prideful. I've never slammed her. I've never made her to be the brunt of any joke. It frustrates me when I hear men slam their wives, make fun of them publicly, put them under the table, under the banner of, I'm just kidding, trying to be funny. Yeah, but your wife is down on the ground crying. Did you notice? Why? Because you publicly slammed her. Do you hear me doing that? If you do, you better call me out. Any other leader in this church, how do they talk about their spouse? Howard Hendricks is uh, an old, old seminary professor from Dallas. And I remember hearing him say this, and he said, it is my goal in the first 60 seconds of meeting anyone to say something about my wife because I want them to know that I have a wife and that I love her a lot. So if you're married, how many minutes go by before you mention that you actually have a wife? How about your kids? If you're a dad or if you're a mom, are kids like, oh, they're such a nuisance. Can't stand them. Or are your kids like, oh, they're such a joy. 
that I get to invest in these little humans who look like me. (laughs) One more test, as it were, under the banner of how do you know if someone's really a wolf? Do they really love people? Do they love God? Do they love their spouse? Do they love their kids? And do they love people? Jesus said, shepherds love and sacrifice for people. He says this in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is the role. If you're a leader, if you're a shepherd, you lay down your life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters, and the man runs away because he's just a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. A shepherd will lay down his life so not one of those sheep gets lost or hurt. He sacrifices. She sacrifices. Loves God, loves their spouse, loves their kids, and loves people. A challenge for us in this church. I've given you, Jesus says, watch out. There are wolves among you, and there will be. Be on guard. You can know them by how they live, by what they teach, by what they say. Observe them. But in order to know if you're being led astray from the truth, you have to know the truth. I was told a long, long time ago, counterfeiters don't study counterfeit money. They study money so they can recognize a fake because they know the real thing. So do you know the real thing enough? Do you know the truth enough that you recognize a fake? In time, fakes, counterfeits, people, leaders, wool dressed as sheep who are just wearing a mask, they will be revealed. In time, they will be revealed. Would you be able to recognize it because you so know the truth? No, that's not biblical. No, that's not the gospel. No, that's not Jesus. No, that's not what a shepherd is supposed to do. Shepherds don't talk about their wives like that. They don't talk about their kids like that. They don't run away when they see danger. They run right to it to protect. Do you know the truth enough that you could spot it as a lie? So this is not on us just to be fruit watchers. This is on us to know the truth. Next week, we're going to talk about what Jesus talks about, uh, building your life upon a rock. But Jesus calls for a decision. I know he did when he was teaching this. People had been listening and hearing Jesus teach for a few days on some amazing things. His heart was not to wow them or even win them. His heart was to warn them. And he comes to this in John in um, Matthew chapter 7. Folks, there's two ways. One road leads to life, one road leads to destruction. And on that road leading to life, there will be people who try to trip you up, hurt you, take you down. It's not an easy road. So the question I leave with us as we would just continue in worship and respond in communion is, do you know which road you are walking on? And before you quickly say, I'm on the narrow road, are your eyes on the destination of the narrow road? Or are your eyes just looking everywhere but forward? 
If you realize today that you are really living on the wide gate, wide road, lots of people, and you just realize, and this road's not, not only it's not going well, but it's leading me to a place I don't want to go, stop movement today. Turn and start walking with Jesus. Jesus made it clear, I am the gate. If you come through me, salvation, heaven, eternal life, God, relationship, forgiveness of sins, everything. That's why we celebrate communion every single week, is to remind ourselves that life eternal, forgiveness of sins, peace with God, is not through us being some spiritual people. It's through us knowing Jesus and walking with him. If you don't know who Jesus is, you've not made that decision, literally bow your head. And just say, Jesus, I've lived my life walking away from you in rebellion against you, but today I declare I'm walking with you. I confess you as God, as my Savior, as my Lord. I will live life on the narrow road knowing that that road takes me to eternal life with you. And if you're living on that narrow road, but you're the guy who, or the woman who's just looking every other way, Ask God, give me grace and courage to stay focused, not on earthly things, but on eternal things. That I would stop looking around at what everyone else has and I don't. Stop pulling in Asaph where he almost slipped up because he was just looking at everyone else's prosperity. And say, Jesus, my eyes are fixed, focused, fast on you. Jesus, thank you that um, you were not only a, a teacher who just so boldly proclaimed the way of God. But I give thanks, Jesus, that you actually called people to a decision, to make a choice. Jesus, I give thanks that there is no room for neutrality, for indifference. Jesus, if there is anyone here this morning that has not made a decision to live life with you walking that narrow road, I pray that their prayer would be confessing you, Jesus, as God, as Savior. If you haven't prayed that, pray and ask Jesus to be your Savior, confessing that you need him. And Jesus, there's people here, and I'm guessing there's many, who made a decision weeks, months, years ago to live life on the narrow road, but continue to look every which way but forward. I pray that today would be such a refocusing of our eyes. Their eyes would be fixed on eternity and eternal things. Knowing that there is absolutely no one or nothing that is more desirable than life with you, Jesus. Jesus.